Welcome. I'm Georgia Hyatt. I'm pastor here, um, and uh, I just want to welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series on prayer, um, and it is um, a. Chris, you have a little thing you want to share with us right now with that music? Here, okay, okay. okay. Um, uh, so we're, we're doing that, and by doing that, we're going through the Lord's Prayer. Um, <clears throat> so I have a question to start us off with, which is, what do you want in life? Most. Is it security? Some type of stability, financial or relational? Is it good health? You're flourishing? Maybe it's a well-balanced life? If you are a person who prays, what do you pray for? Have you ever asked the question, what does God want with my life and the life of the world? Not from a place of insecurity about getting your vocation right, but from a deep sense that the, where the prayer starts is our Father who loves us. I realized this week and over the last months that um, I asked this question too little, too few times. What does God want in the world and of the world? What does God want in me and of me? I'm not beating myself up about it, but I do want more of it. You know, it does start with our Father, and, I, and as a father, I can tell you this. It would be an entirely beautiful delight for me, as I have a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old, who would come up to me and say, Dad, I got, these gr- the, I got some wild plans for my life. It's going to be awesome. But instead of just doing that, they said, but, I, you know, I got these ideas, but... Um, I really like to know what you think. <laughs> what you see in me. And what, how you think I might prosper in the world and for the world. That's all we're doing when we pray this prayer. We pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it's in heaven. So what we're going to do is talk about his kingdom and his will and talk about it both in this passage but also throughout the Gospels. And then what we're going to do is, uh, I think I have four, I can't remember, four or five little application type things for us after that. In the first three Gospels alone, the kingdom is used a hundred times, 115 to be exact. It was the number one by far the thing that Jesus talked about. So what is it? I like one definition a lot, one short, pithy definition. God's reign in God's people into God's world. It's a great, pithy, almost bumper stickery kind of answer, and I like it. It's really good, but there's a problem with any eight-word definition when it was Jesus' favorite topic to talk about. So we have to work with that a little bit. It can be, if we just use that definition, it hides kind of the wild and wonderful, perplexing and powerful ways Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God for Jesus is like a mustard seed. 
The mustard seed is the super, super small seed that gets so big in his parable about this that, like, all sorts of crazy birds can live in it. The kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price. A merchant sells everything he has to buy it. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that fishermen threw in the sea, and they caught all sorts of unexpected and crazy fish. I like crazy fish. That's interesting. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, can we go back to the eight-word definition? I always use this joke, but I'm going to use it again. Jesus, what's the metaphor for? It's too meta for us to understand. <laughs> That's good. Still, it's still good. It's still good. But imagery is actually the way he typically talks about the kingdom, and he does it in so many ways. I think I have 27 different ones that he uses in terms of images that he uses. This is actually good for us because if we can chart it or put it exactly on a spreadsheet, we may think we have a full understanding of it and therefore may even sneak in that we could control it. And we can't. It reminds us that God's kingdom is and always will be a deep mystery. Even in the new heavens and in the earth, it will be mystery to us and beauty and full of exploration. So we come in this prayer with humility, reminded that we're actually praying for a kingdom that is his kingdom. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Not your kingdom come on earth as it is in my calculations. Or worse, my kingdom come on earth with my agency. Jesus is not an add-on to the American dream, but the kingdom is dreamlike with Jesus' use of ministry, now, of imagery. But now, we can say some things concretely about the kingdom, because Jesus also speaks that way about it. This kingdom is the kingdom of the beloved son. He also says some hard things. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. He says some weird things. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We know that the kingdom of God is both at hand and is still coming. And above all else, we're told to seek first the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God belongs to children. It's a, tough man, it's a tough thing for a rich man to enter into. Prostitutes and tax collectors seem to get in before the self-righteous religious folks. It's for the poor and the poor in spirit and the persecuted. It's where the first are last and the last are first. And one of my favorite is it is not, does not consist of talk, but power. And so it's the supernatural power that we're praying for to come here, and it extends in us and in spite of us, because God is at the center of it all. So I still love God's reign in God's people into God's world on the backdrop of all that other stuff. That's what we ask God for. What about his will? What is his will? Theologians uh, typically talk about the Bible's uh, use of will in two different ways, sometimes more, but typically two different ways. Um, the hidden or secret will of God and the revealed will of God. 
God's hidden will is stuff like, why COVID? Or why some are born sightless or with silver spoons or some not at all. That is all deep mystery. But Jesus isn't talking here about his will being done, about the mystery stuff. He's talking about the stuff that's been revealed. God's revealed will is his word, which is first the word of God, Jesus, and second his word, the scriptures. The scriptures, those Holy Spirit-inspired story that reveals God's character and his will. In our tradition and denomination, our leaders vow that we believe the scriptures are the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The way you find out his will is through the scriptures. It simply means that, that God in his mercy shows himself and his plan for us in the world in those scriptures. And he inspired various people from several different cultures and several different languages. And he used all their personalities and, and languages and life experiences to, to, to have it be needed into his story. So the inscripturated word reveals the word made flesh, Jesus, and Jesus does say a lot about what he wills for us to do and how to be. Don't judge or you'll be judged. Take up your cross. Learn how to suffer. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. No one comes to the Father except through me. But he also has this other stuff about his wills, which is a command here. Come to me, you who are heavy laden. I will give you rest in my kingdom. That is my will. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has the worries of its own. Don't fear. I've overcome the world. I will never leave you or forsake you. And one day he says, I'll wipe every tear from your eye. But it's really important that the prayer is that his will be done, not understood. This requires an actionable trust, trust with hands and feet. Trust like someone trusts a balcony or the chair you're sitting in. You got to be on the balcony or in the chair in order to really trust it. Otherwise, it's hypothetical assent. And so, it's about the doing of. And here's what that means. It means that we are praying that we would be convinced of what our Father already knows, that His ways are better than our ways, that He knows better, wants better, has a better plan and way of doing things than we might naturally do. And then we pray that we would have the courage to actually do that stuff. I'll give you an example of, well, this is an anti-example. <clears throat> church planter, new church startup. There was a worship conflict. I know no one's ever even heard of a worship conflict in the history of Christendom. We had two amazing, talented leaders and a third person. We had a big team, but the conflict was there. One of them thought the other was enamored with their spouse. It's early on in the church plant. I checked it out. It wasn't. It was just a suspicion, so I let it go. Immediately, not immediately, but over time, the tension grew, more suspicion, 
Now, I know God's will for this kind of stuff. It's, Jesus tells us, someone's offended by someone, you're supposed to go to them. Work it out, talk it through, reconcile, especially before you worship. But, you know, this situation was different. This is the start of a new church plant. This is this incredible, you know, it's volatile artist types. You know what I mean. You know, this is different. Scared pastor types. It's going to threaten this baby church plant that is so important for the kingdom of God. I prayed about it, but I was praying for relief of the situation. Not thy will be done by the pastor. Prayers like that are thin soup because they have no courage in them. Nothing to do with his will being done, only that my circumstances would change. Instead of me encouraging them to reconcile, I let it go. And I don't have to tell you, chaos. It blew up. Bitterness and suspicion festered. And yet, because of his great mercy and kindness and power, they were able to reconcile. And the only person left repenting was me for not having the courage to do his will, which is fine for being a coward, for abdicating my responsibilities to guide them towards his will being done at worship practice as it is in heaven. Jesus teaches us to start with owning the reality that he is our father. And yet within the same breath, Jesus says, never forget that your father is your king. And he reigns in heaven and on earth and has made a holy and determined, sacrificial, loving advance that includes guidance for his people on the earth. We are his subjects, even though we are his children. And so we can both climb into his lap, but also must bend our knee to him. This is where you get the phrase, Lord and Savior. Okay. So what are some things that might help us with this? We're praying for this presence of the kingdom to come and for his will to be done in us, in our own obedience, just like it's in heaven. Which means that if it's supposed to be reflective of heaven, then we have to be um, somewhat heavenly-minded so we could have some earthly good prayers. So we start to develop, and what this prayer is asking us is to have a heavenly imagination, the perfect fulfillment of his ways. Angels and humans delighting in obedience because they trust him. And he has shown that he is the sacrificial lover of us all and the redeemer of the cosmos. And right in the center of it is the Father and the Son and the Spirit in perfect harmony. And flowing from them is all breath and life and goodness. No death or sin, no war or conflict, no hearts divided, no families divided, no cutting or killing, no anxiety but work, beauty, friendship, a city, a river, music, art, architecture, incredible engineering, supply chains that work, everything. All in perfect harmony with one one another in submission to God. That's how we have to pray our prayers for earth, here as is there. You have to be heavenly minded to pray for earthly good. 
And so we pray it into our lives, that where we live, in our families, and in our hearts, and in our cities, in our neighborhoods, that that loving, just, merciful, peaceful work would be done here. Here's a good gut check. If you're praying for good things to happen, but not the hallowing of God's name, you're not praying on earth as it is in heaven. And if you're praying for the hallowing of his name and not for good things to happen, you're not praying on earth as it is in heaven. It's okay, but it's just a good check for us. Which means we have to also develop this kind of what I wrote, kingdom x-ray vision to accompany this heavenly imagination to get to some clarity about things. Uh, Jesus tells us to pray for God's kingdom to come, so we should be actually looking for his kingdom to come in all sorts of important ways, to have eyes to see it. There's a concreteness in the kingdom vision, but it's also kind of tricky. Sometimes we will, in our hearts or even publicly, we'll we'll over-celebrate some good, whether it's social or personal, and are are, are, are tempted to declare that's kingdom advancement. But we got to be careful. In a fallen world, every human project is fraught with a dark side. And this x-ray vision can learn to see it all, the good and the bad. But only humility can bear that kind of sin. The opposite is true. Some travesty of justice or awful experience, and we tend to think the kingdom of God has lost ground or something like that. We can't be so sure. Because the kingdom also works behind the veil of the earthly realities, and we're praying that we'll be able to see and, and, and assess those kinds of things too. And only kingdom hope can see what is unseen. Prayer is fundamentally supernatural, just like the kingdom. It's mysterious because it's invoking in an unseen reality into the seen world. I dare say it's a kind of magic. It's good magic. And so we pray for eyes to see and ears to hear the sights and sounds of the kingdom. It's not so much a skill, though there is a skill of wisdom in it and a drenching yourself in the word, but it's it's also an openness to see how the Spirit's moving and to be humble about, oh, well, that wasn't everything or that wasn't everything good or bad. But the Lord's working in really beautiful ways. Lord, make that come. In addition to that, we need to have some ambition. Bridled ambition, but it is ambition. We're praying for the kingdom of God to come to earth. Jesus is asking us to pray big, audacious goals, right? They are ambitious and wonderful. If you want to have meaning in your life, don't orient towards your career or your checkbook or your calendar. It cannot hold the weight of the glory you're called to. That stuff won't last. But to be ambitious, seeking first the kingdom of God, you're not going to always love the results, but they will always be worth it. And it's not blind ambition. It is bridled ambition. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, which is a statement about a bridle. Meek isn't something that's beat down. It's simply someone who's restrained by God's will honed power. That's the bridal ambition we're looking for. And this all keeps the your and the prayers for the kingdom, and not the my, the prayers for the kingdom. 
Because when we do, we get overconfident, triumphalistic, or we get depressed. So sure of our cause and our view of the way it should be, we don't have enough bridle in our ambition. As you pray, if you start to swell up with judgment towards others, we're not praying the Lord's Prayer. If you start to swell up with pride over the goodness of your cause, it's probably more your your will than His. It's okay. We get to forgive us our sins a little bit later. But if if you start to have a wry smile, about Jesus looking more beautiful in the world, showing his power off more, looking more merciful to your friends, then you hit that sweet spot. That's what you're looking for. Your manner and your love and your humility and your courage are the greatest indicators that you are praying his will be done with a bridal ambition. Which leads us to the end of of most prayers in in, uh, the Christian tradition, and that is in Jesus' name. But what I want to say is that we should also do this backwards. You know, a lot of people end prayers with, in Jesus' name. That's perfectly fine. It's actually great. That's right and good. But there's another secret in praying this, and that is the fact that Jesus is the one who's teaching us this prayer. He's giving himself to us and this prayer to us till we, so we actually start with Jesus' name. In the ancient Near East, doing something in someone's name is much more than like a hashtag at the end of your prayer. It's declaring that you are an emissary and a servant of the person in whose name you act. And so we start there. He tells us to have a heavenly imagination, x-ray vision for the kingdom, a bridal ambition. But he is the one teaching us. And Jesus is the one that embodies this kind of prayer. Y'all, you want to know the most x-ray vision-y, heavenly imaginative, bridal ambition prayer? How about his in the Garden of Gethsemane. The weight of the sin in the world of the world is before him. He is facing his torture and death. He would be beaten, spat upon, whipped, and lied about. He would be betrayed by his friends. He would be stabbed in the side and pierced in hands and feet, nailed to a cross, all for the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. But he didn't want to do it. He says so. Is there any other way, Father, to get to this kingdom, to come to these people? Any other thing than the cup of bitterness or the drink of judgment? Is there any other way? And then he prayed what he told us to pray. Not my will, but yours be done. And his x-ray vision saw us and the new heavens and new earth he was bringing. And he thought, it's worth it. I don't deserve any of this judgment, and they deserve it all, and they're still worth it. I will take it for them. We call God Father because Jesus called him Father, and we live in him. We yield our wills because he yielded his will. We are accepted because he was rejected and then vindicated at the resurrection. He died that we might live and he lives that we might live with him for eternity. His father raised him from the dead and those who are in him will raise with him. 
to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to the come. He's the one that prayed for the labors of the kingdom. He's the one we pray to for our own labors, that this kingdom would come to our neighbors in our own hearts and our own communities. And then one great day, when heaven and earth are united, we will be with him as his loyal subjects and his beloved children. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.